Talking about race and racism can be difficult. But this summer, people all across Canada and around the world have been doing just that. Mobilized by the call that Black Lives Matter, there has been a push to address the impact of systemic racism in Canada. If you think systemic racism isn't having an impact on our society, our guest calls on you to check the stats and your own bias. Racialized people are overrepresented in our prisons and underrepresented in our leadership. The information is there. The stories are there. The experiences are there. This episode's guest turned her experience of being black and working on Bay Street into a Globe and Mail article that continues to reverberate in the legal profession in Canada. Hadia Rodrigue has since dedicated herself to creating more inclusive and diverse organizations. She talks to us about moving beyond demonstrating inclusion to actually being inclusive. She calls on those who align themselves and their brands with Black Lives Matter to move beyond words and symbols and take action. I'm Michael Bassett, and welcome to Bright Future. My guest this episode is a lawyer, PhD, researcher, consultant, lecturer, speaker, and commentator on issues related to equity, diversity, and inclusion. Dr. Hadia Rodrigue is an award-winning writer. She has bylines in The Walrus, The National Post, and The Globe on Business. She's perhaps most well-known for her piece, Black on Bay Street, which outlined her experiences as a young Black woman working in a Bay Street firm. In 2018, Dr. Rodrigue was named one of Canada's top 25 most influential lawyers by Canadian Lawyers Magazine. Hadia, welcome to Bright Future. Thank you for having me. Hadia, what has it been like to go through the past few months watching Black Lives Matter movement rise to prominence, the protests, the discussions, this focus on race that we've all had? It's been a bit trippy, I'd say, a bit of a strange experience. This is the stuff that I talk about and research and live, eat, and breathe. Part of me is just like, what took everybody so long? Why did it take somebody being murdered for you to care about what happens to people on a daily basis in North America? I think it was the combination of the video and the very clear killing of someone on tape and the pandemic. Because you have a lot of people who are stuck at home. Their only outlet is TV or the internet. And you can't watch someone's murder and then go to the bar afterwards. You can't escape from it in the way that you could escape before. I think that is the genesis of why we've had this focus. And I think also it's a lot of the labor of Black people in this moment who are putting out content and making sure that people can't just walk away and just can't treat this like another Freddie Gray or Eric Garner or Trayvon Martin, because this is not the first time we have seen a Black person murdered at the hands of the state. There was something about being at home and the pandemic that had a certain tinder that we didn't have before. We've seen such an increased focus on race in the U.S., but also in Canada, focusing on the racialized experiences of Canadians whether in our cities, in the pandemic, in the relationship with the police. Why do you think it is so difficult for white people to understand the importance of racism and systemic racism in the experience of racialized Canadians? 
I don't know if it's difficult. I think it's just a willful ignorance. I think it's a choice not to acknowledge or engage in discussions about racism. We have a certain level of racial illiteracy in Canada. White people in particular don't know how to talk about it, don't feel like they have the language, feel like it's not about them. Even using the word racialized to describe people of color, that implies that only people of color are racialized and white people are not. It assumes that whiteness is the default when the creation of whiteness is kind of why we have racism in the first place. It was setting a group of people above others. When you have former Canadian politicians likening having glasses in high school to the daily repeated systemic oppression that people face, it just seems disingenuous. How could you think that having glasses in high school is in any way compared to being a Black person in Canada? You would have to have intentional blinders on to be able to look at the upper echelon of our politics, of our political parties, of our corporation, at any position in power to make that kind of statement, to say that there isn't something systemic going on. I don't think it's difficult to understand. I think people just choose not to, or they don't want to. We've seen a number of individuals dial back on that notion of systemic racism. They've said there is no systemic racism in organizations. And then after a few conversations with some key people, they've said, actually, there is. Is that progress? I kind of feel like they were lying before, to be honest. And for you to think that there is no systemic racism or systemic sexism, like let's take my field of the law, for example. Let's look at the top of a Bay Street law firm mostly white men. Let's even just not even get into race. Let's stick with gender. You see about 10% women and 90% men at the top of a lot of law firms. Graduation rates from law school have been 50-50 for the past 20 years. For you to believe that that 90-10 split represents the best of who we had in our profession and the best of who you had at your firm, if you were hiring 50-50 in your associate classes would mean that you believe that men are smarter than women. Because statistically, that's the only way that that could play out is if you truly believe that men and specifically white men are the most qualified and the smartest out of, out of all the groups of people. Because it would mean that you think that men six, seven, and eight are more qualified than women three, four, and five. I don't see how you could think anything else and not think that something systemic is at play. But I think there are some people who truly do believe that men are smarter than women or that men are more capable. But if that was the case, we would see men outperforming women in law school at an 80 to 20 or 90 to 10 rate. We would see them outperforming women in university at an 80 to 20 or 90 to 10 rate. We should see 80% men on the dean's list, and we should see only 20% women. But that's not what we see. In fact, in a lot of schools, you see the exact opposite. In some programs, you'll have 75% women on the dean's list and 25% men on the dean's list. There's research out of the U.S. that shows that women outperform men in school. They study more. They spend less on non-extracurricular social activities. If you look at who's going to university in Canada, 
I think it's about 56% women now and 44% men. To have that kind of a flip at the end shows that there's something else going on. I've seen diagrams of the pipeline at law firms where you start out with certain percentages. And if you break the categories down into women of color, men of color, white women and white men, the white women and the men of color, their ranks decrease by about 50% once you get to equity partnership from the initial hiring as a first year associate. And the women of color decrease by 75%, but the white men part of the funnel expands. If something systemic is not going on, the only other explanation would be that you think that white men have a more innate talent than everybody else. Statistically, that's actually impossible, given all of the other evidence. One of the challenges and one of the opportunities through the awareness has been that many companies have taken on some of the discussions as it relates to Black Lives Matter. We see that through the initiatives that many companies took around the Blackout Tuesday, where they took their brands and committed themselves to aligning with Black Lives Matter, but also to creating and addressing diversity. How important do you think it was for companies to show that support? It really depends on what the motivation was. I think it's something that's hard to tell. Were you doing it just because you thought you were supposed to do it? Or were you doing it from a genuine place of wanting to show that support and committing to change? For me, it's not enough to just say, oh, yeah, we know racism is bad. The next step now is to come out with an action plan that has tangible metrics so people can hold you accountable and be ready to speak to how you're going to achieve the numbers you want to achieve and what you're actually going to do. And one thing I want to make really clear when it comes to Black Lives Matter and it comes to anti-Blackness and organizations, the phrase seems to be so confusing for people, Black Lives Matter. We're not saying that other lives don't matter, but we're saying Black Lives Matter as well, because right now the evidence is that they don't. And so for all those people who like to shout all lives matter, just want to make that clear to you. The whole point is, yes, all lives should matter, but right now they don't all matter. I actually saw someone post a Blue Lives Matter somewhere on Facebook and other people commented below saying, firefighters matter too. What about teachers? What about nurses? And they said, yes, those matter, but those professions aren't under attack. Yes. That's exactly the point. <laughs> you just proved the point of Black Lives Matter by saying that. Yes, white lives are not under attack. That's why we're highlighting Black Lives Matter. With the Blackout Tuesday, from an individual perspective, on Instagram, I saw a lot of people putting black squares in their Instagram. It was frustrating for me when I saw people who hadn't said anything about Blackness or Black Lives Matter for two weeks and then put up this black square and then did nothing else after that. Who was that actually for? Was that really for me? Because how does that help me? The whole point of the movement on Instagram was supposed to be leaving space for black people and black creators. And how does you putting up a black square actually leave space for other people? I want people to think about their motivations for doing things and think about do you have the ability to back up what you're saying and to actually do what you're going to do? Empty promises are not going to help anyone. And those will actually come back to bite you in the... It's worse to me if someone puts up a big front and says they're going to do X, Y, and Z and then does nothing than someone who decides to be reflective and to learn 
first before they figure out what they're going to do. It's about, are you going to do something? I don't really care if you put up a square. I care about what you're actually doing. I want to support the companies that are actually doing something about the issue. You've talked a little bit about the kinds of things you'd like to see beyond that expression of support. What do you think it's really going to take to get more inclusive workplaces? At its core, what we want people to do is actually quite simple. People have this misconception. I'm going to take Blackness in particular. Black people are not asking you to give them jobs or to give them opportunities because they are Black. They are asking for you to stop not giving them jobs and to stop not giving them opportunities and to stop not judging them fairly because they're Black. All we're asking is actually to be treated the way everybody else is, the way that you would treat a straight white man. You know how to treat a straight white man, so just do that for everybody. It's actually not that complicated. We're not actually asking you to do things you don't already know how to do and you don't already do for other people. Giving that young man that stretch opportunity, make sure you give that stretch opportunity to everybody else. You see certain groups of people have sponsors, you make sure that everybody has sponsors. You see that certain groups of people are not invited to the drinks or the drinks are actually exclusionary because you have groups of people who don't drink. So then you change it so that it's an activity that's inclusionary. It's not actually rocket science and it's not actually things that are hard. And there are lots of people who've done lots of work to tell you what you can do. It's just a matter of actually following through and doing those things. You know how to retain men. Just do the things that also retain women, that also retain Black people, and stop doing the things that prevent retention. It's good for everybody. Take, for example, evaluation. There was one cool little study that I saw, didn't have the biggest sample size, but it was still helpful, where they sent out a piece of writing to several partners at a bunch of law firms, and they purposely inserted a bunch of errors spelling errors, errors of law, errors of fact, et cetera. At the top of one memo, they put a stereotypically white name. At the top of another, they put a stereotypically black name and a a bit of information about the person. The white name on the memo got 4.2 out of five comments like, has potential, needs to work on X, needs to work on Y, and they found three spelling errors. The black name for the exact same memo, I believe got a 3.2 out of five for the same memo. Comments like, can't believe they went to NYU, average at best, and they found six spelling errors. So we're not asking you to grade the white memo as a 3.2. We're asking you not to grade the black memo as a 3.2 and to give it the same 4.1 grade that you would have given to them if they were white. But this is a very real thing that people are up against in the workplace. And it comes at all levels, it comes at recruitment, it comes at retention efforts, it comes in the evaluation process, it comes in the work allocation process, it comes in promotion, it comes in sponsorship. Every point in the workplace, if it's something that could help or hurt someone's career, bias can play a role. Removing bias from the process so that everybody gets the same benefit of the doubt, the same opportunities, the same chances, so that we actually have a meritocracy and not whatever we're pretending we have right now. 
that's the tension that many organizations have. They have a belief in a meritocracy system without an understanding of the systemic racism, the unconscious bias, the elements that get in the way. They may think that they're moving things forward in the right way, but can't just be, just treat everyone the same. There has to be some kind of policies or practices that you think might help to address some of that bias so that we don't end up with a sense that we've done our best, but we still can't get the numbers. That's what you often hear. People think their policies are unbiased, but then when you do a deeper examination of them, they aren't. It's a lot easier to change a process than it is to change people. I don't know if that 65-year-old lawyer in the corner office is going to have a sudden change of heart. But if you change the process so he can't be biased within the process, then that makes it easier. Take the example of the orchestra. In the 70s, most orchestras in North America were 5% women, 95% men. And the split has gotten much better because in about the 70s, the hiring went got closer to about 50-50. What happened? Did all of a sudden you start sponsoring women to play music? Did you buy 100,000 violins for women? Did you open special schools for women's music? No, they put down a carpet and they put down a screen. All of a sudden you were just being evaluated the only thing that mattered, which was the music. And the women were always there. It's just the bias was hiding their talent and it was hiding their skill. The women are there. The black people are there. You're just not seeing them because your processes won't let you. Do you have recommendations for organizations to help them remove those biases from their processes? I think they should work with organizations who do this work. In my own practice of the law, lawyers think they can do everything. But you would never get an employment lawyer to do tax law. You would never get a tax lawyer to do employment law. Why do you think that you are HR experts? And if you have thought the system was fine for 30 years, why are you the person to try and undo the system? Bring in people for whom this is their expertise, who are external observers who can really help you find these points. Collecting data, that's a really big thing that a lot of companies don't do. What's the difference in compensation between your Black partners and your white partners? If you're trying to correct racism in your organization and you don't know the answer to things like that or trying to correct for sexism and you don't know the differences between the bonuses paid to your male and female associates in every year, how are you going to know if you're doing better? How do you know if you have a problem? And how do you know where you need to go? And how do you know if you're getting there? You can't fix what you don't measure. I'm often astounded by the lack of data that companies collect. And I think part of it is they don't want to know that they have a problem. If they don't have the numbers, they can pretend everything's fine. But if they go looking at the numbers and the numbers paint a different picture, they're going to have to do something about it. For a lot of people, I think inaction is easier than action. As it relates to recruitment or retention and promotion, those are all areas where those divides continue to persist and sometimes get worse. The recruitment might be good, but then the retention side falls off and then that affects the promotion. What's your sense of why that drop-off tends to happen? Recruitment often has more HR people involved. And 
and the recruitment processes have been slowly getting better with time, but recruitment's just one link in the chain. And so recruitment, sure, they get in the door, but then you have microaggressions, the way they're treated on a daily basis, what work they get, how they're evaluated. All of those things will eliminate more and more people as you keep going. It's just a matter of time and volume. The recruitment process really only lasts like two to three weeks and people get in the door, but then you're going to lose a lot more people over a longer period of time. So take something as seemingly innocuous as work allocation. I remember speaking to a partner during one of my talks and I was making the point that you want to make sure that different people are, are getting a chance to do different things. And he's saying, I went to this person, they did a good job. I want to give them another piece of work. I won't have to explain it to them. And he was really focused on how it made his life easier. And I said, well, what happens if that person leaves and you haven't taught anybody else how to do it? What will you do then? And then I also said, what made you go to them in the first place? Why were they the one you chose to give that work to in the first place? You didn't have a good answer for that. And also your job, in this case, it was a lawyer, your job is to train the next generation, not just to train one of the lawyers in the next generation, but to train everybody in your group. And yes, it would be easier to just train one person, but that's not the job. If you want to just train one person, have a sole practice where you have one junior. But if you're a partner in a large firm with a large group, you can't do things like that, especially when you know there is likely some bias in who you're choosing to train, who you're choosing out of the group in the first place. Different companies, different systems, and a lot of consulting firms, they have a person whose job it is to allocate work because it is something that requires reflection and thought, and you want to make sure that each person is getting the skill set and the tools in their toolbox that they need for success in the organization. And you want everybody to have that. It means that you'll actually get to choose the best person at the end of the day to make partner, not just the person who happened to have the best opportunity. It's a good thing for your organization to have a plethora of choice, not just one or two. Bringing you back to 2017 and your article, Black on Bay Street. It's a gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> In that article, you profiled your experience as a Black lawyer. Why did you feel compelled to write that article? Initially, the article was just supposed to be about Bay Street hiring. It was not supposed to be about me. It was not supposed to be about my life. It was really not supposed to be. I was going to be in it to some extent as someone who had gone through the process, but it really wasn't supposed to be about me. I, in fact, had interviewed people who are on hiring committees, lawyers, student recruiters. I interviewed other students who had gone through the process. And the reason I had done this is because I was sitting in the Massey College Common Room in 2015, and a bunch of students had just gotten back from their OCI process. And what they described to me seemed very similar to what I had gone through almost 10 years earlier. And to me, that didn't really make that much sense. I was also in a meeting where I was interning at a magazine, and I told them about some of my interviews as a future lawyer. In one of my interviews, we talked about the Leafs and the Nolo Blahniks, and I got a job. And they were shocked 
nobody asked you anything about the law? No, didn't get asked a single question about the law. And they just couldn't believe that that's how lawyers were hired. That's when I decided to write the piece about hiring. But then when I sat down, the whole other story came out of my fingertips than what I meant to write. I did not think I was doing anything revolutionary or shocking. I was flabbergasted and surprised by the reaction that my piece got. I thought people would forget about it by Monday, to be perfectly honest. I tweeted, I wrote a thing and then put the link on my Twitter. They spelled my name wrong in the first version, which was unfortunate. So I had to post the link again. But I really didn't think, I was like, oh, I wrote a piece, it was long, I got paid, cool. And was expecting to now like go about my day and my week. And then my phone just started just buzzing. So I got, got 5,000 new Twitter followers that weekend. It was shared 13,000 times on Facebook in the first week. There was a video that accompanied it that was watched a quarter of a million times in the first week. I did not expect this in any way, shape, or form. It seems like it continues to reverberate. The Globe and Mail recently published something of a follow-up to your article that explored the shocking lack of diversity that remains in Bay Street. What was your reaction to that update? I thought it was good. I thought it was overdue. It was good to hear the stories and experiences of other people. It was disheartening to see that so many experiences continue and are the same. And I think it was good at sort of pointing out some of the statistics and talking to the firms about what they're doing and what they could be doing. I think there's a long way to go. I do think there is some momentum, and I hope that that continues, but we shouldn't need momentum to tackle a problem that we've known existed. I told everybody about this stuff two and a half years ago. It's not like the murder of George Floyd brought to light some new information when it comes to the workplace. Hopefully the combinatorial effect of repeated stories and messaging hopefully will be what we need to see some actual change. There are some firms, to give them credit, who have been making changes. I just would like to see more changes. I'd like to see best practices more widely shared. I know this is a competitive environment, but there's a bigger picture here. The burden of explaining race and racism often falls to the effective groups. You don't often hear white people talking about race and racism. What do you wish more people would do? to give them a better understanding of the role race plays in the experiences of their neighbors, their friends, their coworkers. I wish more people would listen to the stories that have already been shared and already out there without requiring Black people to do additional labor. Educating yourself and reading can be a really great way if you don't want to burden people, making them explain things to do, which you should not be doing. Read books. Things like How to Talk About Race by Ijuoma Oluo, The Skin We're In by Desmond Cole, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, Me and White Supremacy by Leila F. Saad. These are good places to start your learning and your journey if you haven't already. But you've been alive in Canadian society. You've seen the way we treat Indigenous and Black people you should know by now that the police target Black people and Indigenous people in a way that they don't target white people. You know, marijuana 
usage rates were about the same, but if you look at who was actually convicted for marijuana possession, the stats were quite different. Black people are 20 times more likely to be shot by the police in Canada than white people. The experiences are out there. It's time for you to examine why you haven't been listening, why you haven't been paying attention. I think right now what happens is not that more labor needs to be put out there for you to consume, but you need to be examining why you weren't consuming it in the first place, why you weren't listening to the stories, whose stories were you listening to, when you heard the stories, why didn't you do anything about them? Did you just listen and dismiss? Why? Sitting in your own comfort and discomfort and examining your own thoughts, ideas, and to be frank, prejudices in, in a lot of cases. The main white supremacy book in particular is very good because it has some reflecting journalism prompts that really gets people to sit and think. So questions about what positive experiences has your white privilege granted you throughout your life that BIPOC people do not have? In what ways have you wielded white privilege over BIPOC that have done harm, whether or not you intended to do so? Or what negative experiences has your white privilege protected you from throughout your life? A lot of people don't like it when you say the word white privilege. People get very uncomfortable even with that term. White privilege doesn't mean that you had an easier life generally, or that things weren't hard for you, that things weren't hard for you because of your race. And I like to liken it to, you know, think about a hundred meter race. On the left side, it's pretty smooth. Maybe there's a pothole, maybe there's a bunny sitting on it. You have to run around. Whereas on my side, maybe I have to climb over some barbed wire. There's maybe a fire breathing dragon. It's the same hundred meters, but the obstacles that I have to face along the finish line are very different than the obstacles that someone who is not black does not have to face. It may be the case that you don't finish the race. Something could still happen to you along the lines where you don't finish the race. Or I may still finish the race, even though the race is much harder for me. Or I might finish the race faster than you, even though you had less barriers. And if I finish faster than you, that usually means that I was faster. Because if I could finish faster than you, despite all those barriers, it means that if you'd been on mine, I would have kicked your butt. And if I'd been on yours, I would have definitely kicked your butt. It's really about the barriers and challenges that you have to face sort of in this game of life. I also like for the kids to use the analogy of a video game. Someone starts on level two and someone starts on level eight. Level eight is a lot harder. It doesn't mean the person on level eight won't finish. It doesn't mean the person on level eight won't finish quickly. But for them to have the same performance in the game or finish at the same time as the person on level two, they had to have been more talented. The person on level two might not, they might still lose all their lives and not finish, but the chances of them finishing are much higher. Just recognizing that what white privilege means is that you didn't face certain challenges in your life that other people have had to face. That's a reality. A lot of people get very uncomfortable, but it's the truth. You really didn't. Sitting with that and sitting with what that has brought you, what that has saved you from, what that has insulated you from, why does it make you uncomfortable to, to think about that? We've seen a lot of justified anger in the Black Lives Matter movement. 
in the protests, in the frustration around all of this. Mm -hmm. Totally understandable. You've also talked about Black joy and this idea where you can start to create a contrast to some of those stereotypes of Black pain in the media. Talk a little bit about what that means, Black joy as a form of activism and why you think it's important. I wrote a piece for Flair called The Case for Black Joy, and I defined it as the unabashed enjoyment of Black culture without apology, hesitancy, or shame. I think it's very unusual for us to see Black people just living their lives, doing things we consider ordinary. When you think about the representations you see of Blackness on the screen or in the media or in music, it's one picture. We don't get to see the fully nuanced differences of Blackness that we see of whiteness. It's almost like we also can't have nice things. Anytime Black people are having joy or enjoying something that can't be owned or consumed, I interviewed someone who said, they're having all this fun without me, I have to go and ruin this. It's expected that everything is for you. And when it's not, it gets very confusing. And then you have to come in and trample on it because you don't understand why people get to have something you don't have, even though most of the things are for you. Some of the reasons why some people get mad when Black people decide to have their own clubs or their own space. Well, every other space is for you. Why can't we have something that's for us, for us, by us? You see a lot of fetishization of Black pain in our media. There needs to be much more space for Black joy, but the hypervisibility of Black pain and you know, anti-Black terror that informs a lot of people's ideas about what Blackness is and it becomes the way that we're seen. And I think we need to create more space for expressions of joy and positivity so we can be seen in our full humanity just the way everybody else is. Hadia, what makes you optimistic about the future? Am I optimistic about the future? <laughs> I mean, I have to be. Things have gotten progressively better for generations. Things are not great, but I'm not enslaved. It's better being free than being enslaved. That was a big change. We have quite a ways to go. And when you think about it, my dad was born in 1948. 55 years ago, when he was in his teens, he would not have been able to ride at the front of the bus in America. As a 12-year-old boy, he would not have been able to do that. As a 15-year-old boy, he would not have been able to do that. This is not our distant history. This is our recent history. In the 70s and 80s, when Black people were actively discouraged from buying homes and from that middle-class economic wealth that so many people enjoy, the redlining of districts, the denial of mortgages, these are things that are not the distant past. These were a blip of time ago. My great-grandfather fought in World War I. This is our present. These are the lives of people who still are around. I am optimistic that things every year get better, but they're not great. But I have to believe that I'm doing this not just for me right now, but for future generations to benefit. I am the greatest realization of my ancestors right now. If you ask my ancestors 300 years ago, if they thought they would have a descendant who graduated from law school and a PhD 
and was a speaker and a writer and earning an income and not being enslaved, they wouldn't have been able to picture that, but they fought for it. And so I have to fight for those who come after me. Hadia, it's been great speaking with you. I really appreciate you helping to shed light on this and the work that you do to bring attention to the challenges that we continue to have in addressing racism and systemic racism in Canada and in organizations. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You've been listening to Bright Future by the Conference Board of Canada. This series is produced by Jen DeHamel. Nancy Nguyen is our audio engineer and Andy Joy is our writer. Ideas were contributed by Rob Collins and Aaron Brophy. I'm Michael Bassett and I'm the host and executive producer for this series. The views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and do not reflect the conference board's opinion. For more podcasts, videos, commentary, and ideas, visit conferenceboard.ca.